Today we're going to talk about erectile dysfunction and how it's probably the key to you getting your startup idea off the ground. But first, a story. Two young fish are swimming along when they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? I've got a yearly calendar alert that reminds me to read David Foster Wallace's commencement speech to Kenyon College. That's where that fish story is from. If I heard someone say that they had a calendar alert set to a random college commencement speech from 2005, I'd probably think they were a pretentious ass. Don't worry. That's the only random college commencement speech I read every year, and it's absolutely my favorite thing that's ever been written. I'll pop it in the show notes. I have the reminder set because it's important for me to remember the message. Like lots of people, probably everyone, I struggle with identifying and doing the thing that actually matters. I'm great at the mental gymnastics needed to convince myself that whatever I'm doing now will eventually help me do the thing that actually matters in a better way. Today, we're going to talk about how to figure out what matters and how to do it. Because, in David Foster Wallace's words, the obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about erectile dysfunction because it's a great example of the type of focus that you're going to need and because it's season three and I'm running out of startup examples. This is the Idea to Startup podcast and this is our jazzy theme music. The Idea to Startup podcast is brought to you today by you, but not you today, you in March your future self, March you. It looks like we're going to be stuck inside for a little while longer, and there probably isn't a lot going on between now and March earliest. That's four and a half months, about 135 days. What can you get done in 135 days? If you eat healthy every day for the next 135 days, you probably won't recognize yourself at the end. If you do five push-ups tomorrow, then six push-ups the next day, and seven push-ups the next day, you'll end up doing 139 push-ups a day by March. I just did the math, and if you stick to adding one push-up per day starting at 5 tomorrow, you'll have done 9,720 push-ups when March rolls around. If you want to start a startup, if you spend an hour a day between now and March, you'll do the equivalent of about five full 40-hour weeks of work on your idea. And if you end up doing three hours on those weekends, the point is there's a chance for you to do something very real here. If it's start a startup, you know by now to go to gettacklebox.com. If it's something else, build out a plan and commit. Small incremental gains each day. By mid-March, you'll be happy as hell you started today. If you need inspiration, start by reading two specific books, Atomic Habits and Range. I'll pop them in the show notes and they will help. We're going to get into erectile dysfunction, but first I want to talk about a thing that probably won't exist in 20 years, business school. I started business school in 2009 after roughly two and a half years in finance. I'd started a company on the side while I was working in finance and the bug had very much bitten me. I loved the process of building stuff from scratch. I decided that no one saw that process more than venture capitalists, so I wanted to be that. When I'd asked a few people how one gets into venture capital, the answers were usually either start a successful startup or go to business school. I was a naive idiot at the time and didn't put much other thought into it than that business school seemed way more reliable than starting a startup and the investment of time and money seemed to make sense. Also, worst case, I was at business school. 
the network and everything I'd learned would probably become worth it. In finance lingo, I'd covered my downside. James Clear, the author of the book Atomic Habits I mentioned in the early opening ad thing, talks a lot about the difference between motion and action. Motion is the ridiculous gymnastics I mentioned earlier that we all do to keep from doing the hard thing that actually matters. Action is the hard thing. We all subconsciously avoid doing the hard thing because it'll force us to take stock of where we're at. Reflection is just about the scariest thing people can do, and it forces us to really think about whether we're worthy of the prize we're going after or not. Motion allows us to feel like we're making progress without any real introspection into whether what we're doing is the most direct route to where we want to go, or if we even know where we want to go. We're busy, so that must be good. Once I got into business school, I started speaking with VCs for summer internships. I'd mentioned that I'd had a failed startup and that I'd worked in finance for two years and just assumed that that resume would make me the prettiest girl at the dance. It did not. One of the interviews I had stuck with me to this day. A VC who I'll always be grateful to cut off her interview about 10 minutes in and asked if I wanted candid advice. I said yes. Then he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think it was pretty close to this, you aren't qualified to get a summer internship at any VC because you haven't even tried to do any of the hard things that would indicate that you'd be good at this. You've started a company, sure, which is great, but it didn't go anywhere. You never even did it full time. You never invested in anything. You did a couple of years in finance and you're in business school, which is all great, but really that just means you were born in the right zip code and that you've got a pulse. At this point, I was about as uncomfortable as I could possibly be. I was sitting in a full suit in a North Carolina heat I think I sweated all the way through my armpits. He continued, VC requires an understanding of business models, of people, of market dynamics. It requires you to be able to get to a level of confidence to take a serious bet, not dip your toe in. You haven't done any of that, which is totally fine, but I don't wanna pay you to learn if you actually like this stuff. Do that on your own dime. Then come back when you've got some unique value that you can add to our firm. I sloshed up in my seat to ask one question. It's about all I could muster. What's doing it on my own dime look like? He replied, why are you in business school? You could have taken the money you put into business school and made five angel investments in five companies. You'd start learning the hard things, how to source companies, how to evaluate companies, how to pull the trigger, how to help out entrepreneurs. You're in business school because you didn't want to actually do this. You wanted to sort of do it. You wanted to keep your options open. We want people who actually want to do it. Well, shit. Business school was motion. Making investments would have been action. Another David Foster Wallace quote comes to mind. Bees have to move very fast just to stay still. All right, time to get back into erectile dysfunction. A good friend of mine is considering taking a role at Row.co, the parent company of a company you've likely heard of, Roman. Roman is a digital health company that diagnoses, prescribes, and delivers treatment. Digital health is not a new idea by any stretch. We've known for a long time that it's silly to have to make an appointment to see your doctor for every issue you have. A doctor for most of these things is killing an ant with an anvil, and people have been trying to solve this problem for as long as the internet's been around. Routing some number of patients around a doctor, the ones that really don't need to see one, is a lucrative and smart business. Let doctors do what they do best in person, let the internet do what it does best to handle all the rest of the stuff remotely. The idea is smarter when you dig a little deeper and realize that around 80 to 90% of medicines prescribed are generics. 
if you're prescribing the generic stuff, you could source it or white label it or make it yourself and not even have to deal with insurance companies because the prices are already competitive. You start to look at a very vertical, profitable business. Despite all of this, a true digital health provider never really emerged for a decade or more. Then Roman and a few companies that look a lot like Roman did. The question is, why? The answer stems from motion versus action. I did finally land a VC internship during my B-School days, despite myself, and working at Johnson & Johnson in their internal venture group was an incredible experience. We heard lots of pitches around telehealth, and lots of the companies we heard from were focused on the tech side of the business, how they could scale this thing, how they could get doctors willing to be involved virtually to give the prescriptions needed to prescribe as many patients as possible, how they could get the generics of all the most popular drugs, and how they could eventually white label or produce their own. These companies talked about scale. They didn't realize it, but this was motion. This was avoiding the hard thing. This was a bee working very hard just to stay in place. Sometimes, most of the time, the hard thing isn't obvious. A quick interjection. A few years back, I wanted to write a book. So I reached out to my friend who'd written a successful book and told him I was gonna start writing one. He told me to stop. He said writing the book would feel like I was making progress, but it would be fake progress. The book, he said, didn't matter that much. Books, like everything, are not a meritocracy. A great book wouldn't do much for me. What did matter was the audience. So I had to do that hard work first. Either build my own audience that was big enough and loyal enough to kickstart a book sale, or sign with a publisher and borrow their audience. If I was gonna build my own, it'd be more profitable, but it would take years. If I was going to work with a publisher, I'd need a killer pitch and some proof that I could convince people to buy this thing before they'd read it. And obviously, I would lose a bunch of profits along the way. Neither of the hard, important things I had to do had anything to do with actually writing the book. For the record, I chose path number one. I'll write a book once I've proved to a big enough group of people that I'm interesting enough to write a book worth reading. Back to telehealth. The tech and the doctors and the medicine in this case were like writing that book. They actually didn't really matter and none of those companies ended up going anywhere. What mattered was customers. The hard thing was changing deeply ingrained behavior. People go to doctors, they trust doctors. They do not trust people doling out advice on the internet. Anything you do that isn't solving the trust problem simply doesn't matter. Trust is the hard thing. And the hard thing is where you get to be creative. Once you decide that changing customer behavior is what you need to do, then finding customers already willing to change behavior is your next step. For Roman, you find a small group of people who actively avoid the status quo for some reason. People who a telehealth solution would be amazing for. People who don't like the current process. People who have a lot of urgency. The problem is people with urgent problems, especially in the medical space, tend to trust doctors. They've got something serious, that's why it's urgent. They wanna see their doctor, they don't wanna go on the internet. You need to thread that needle. You need the perfect initial customer who has a lot of urgency, but who also doesn't wanna see a doctor. And Roman found them, people with erectile dysfunction, because that's something people don't wanna bring up with their doctor. They would much rather speak with someone they'll never speak to again. Anonymity is best. Whether there should be stigma around erectile dysfunction or not is irrelevant. There is, so we work within reality. Finding that group of customers allows you to do the thing, to see if you can get people to trust and use a telehealth solution in that scenario. 
We talked last week about how being a founder is all about velocity of learning, how fast you can get reps. Let's layer onto that. It's really about how fast you can get reps doing the hard thing. Erectile dysfunction allowed Roman to get reps, along with the other offerings with the same characteristics, hair loss and premature ejaculation. The holy trinity of embarrassing things guys really care about, but would rather kick a wall with toothpicks under their toenails than discuss openly. Since hard things are hard, we need to get reps at them to earn the next steps. You earn a successful book by getting reps in of creating content people like enough to ask for more. You earn a telehealth company by getting reps in and acquiring customers and delivering them a telehealth solution. Motion versus action. I have no idea if Roman did this on purpose. Reading the story on their website, it's about a founder who had ED at a young age, so it actually kind of looks like they maybe fell ass backwards into this thing. That's fine, and it actually almost proves my point more. The hard thing was so hidden, it took everyone trying everything under the sun for 15 years before eventually someone landed on the thing that'd work. And a few companies landed on it simultaneously. You might have heard of Hims, a company with the same growth pattern as Roman and the same value prop. Which leads us to the last thing we need to talk about today. How do you find what the hard thing is? It's not as obvious as it sounds, but acknowledging it is a first huge step. And despite everything I say about customer indifference, it's not always that, at least early on. And when it is, it still isn't always clear how it applies. In retrospect, it's easy to see that customer indifference is the thing for writing a book. People need to care about you before you write something, but that wouldn't be obvious up front. The first thing I'd do would be to ask around, ask the experts, what'll be hard about this? But there are problems here too. If you asked a doctor what the hardest part of building a telehealth solution would be, they'd probably talk about the edge cases, moments when their specialty and knowledge was really needed, when strep throat was actually throat cancer. I know because I asked my doctor friends and that's what they said. Everyone's got a hammer and everything looks like a nail, whether we want it to be that way or not. So here's an exercise I think can work. List out the end result. What's the absolute best case scenario? Detail that. Picture the moment. Picture everything that has to work for your customer to be blown away. So if you write a book and it goes, quote, amazing, first, what's that even mean? What's it look like? That's hard enough on its own, especially for a startup idea. But for the book, if the answer is that it lands on the New York Times bestseller list, okay, great. What did it take to get there? How's that list compiled? If it's picked by book reviewers at the New York Times, how do they choose what books they read in the first place? If it's based on sales, what's the algorithm? Keep working your way back, get clarity. Then make a checklist of all the things that need to happen to get to the best case scenario. Look through that list and see if there are any items that would get rid of all the rest. For example, let's say you worked backwards and you decided that you needed 1000 purchases in the first week of releasing your book for all the other good things to happen. How would that happen? You might get press, specifically writers of the New York Times and Washington Post. You might get the book forwarded to big time authors who will push it to their channels. You might need a publisher to spread it to their audience. You might get featured on Amazon's best new book list. You might get 10 influencers to tweet or post, or you could just have an email list with 25,000 people of which 10% buy, done. That last one is the one that makes everything else irrelevant. Is it hard? Yes but it's the hard thing, it's supposed to be. And building that list will get you reps in attention and content. It's the answer to how to write a super successful book. 
here are the questions I've written down when I think about what I'm working on or how I can evaluate a startup. First, what's the hard thing? What would make this way, way easier? What networks would make this way, way easier? What does the moment when the customer is blown the hell away look like exactly in detail? What's not there in that moment? What doesn't matter that everyone else thinks does? Who's your fight with? Who's the enemy? Everyone's story-based. What's the story that will resonate with customers about overcoming that enemy? It's very easy to confuse motion with action. It's the mistake smart, driven, motivated people make the most. I'll throw one more quote at you from a great show I'd recommend everyone watch, Ted Lasso. He says, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Motion is comfortable. Action is not. Seek it out and do it. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you made it this far, you're the type of person who will get a lot out of Tacklebox. If you head over to gettacklebox.com backslash self-serve, type that out, S-E-L-F-S-E-R-V-E, and pop in your email, you'll get 20% off the self-paced accelerator program when we launch. You can't get this from the website. You have to go in there and type it. So don't tell anyone else who didn't make it to the end of the podcast. This is just for us. Have a great week.